0: Hi, everyone. It's Dr. Deanne Ross here. I'm the love theorist. And this is a really special podcast for you today with a new colleague of mine, Jonathan Link. And he's so new that actually so much of what he's going to be talking about today is new to me too. That's why I'm doubly excited. Um, I'm just going to say hi to you right here in a split second, Jonathan. But if you then let me finish introducing everything. So hi, Jonathan. Good to have you. Yes, good
1: afternoon. Do you want to just say hello? Yay!
0: Good, <laughs> Good afternoon. afternoon yeah? we, hey, is it raining down on the Gold Coast there?
1: Yeah, it's only, um, you know, only very light uh, drizzle we're receiving at the moment. Yeah.
0: Yeah, we we got a bit of a scatter of showers coming through here in Nambour as well. So mm. like um, to the listeners, as I was saying, it's really good to have you here today and I hope you're all comfortable and warm wherever you are. And as part of the, the Love Theory series, there is a sub-part sub that is my favourite part now called Revolutionary Love Stories. And this is a, a part where I come into a conversation with people I'm really inspired by, and today it's Jonathan Link um to share have them share with us how what what they're doing and how they are in the world that is making a big difference, and one of the words that we're going to explore as part of all of what Jonathan's about is love and how that is part of what inspires or enables him to do what he does, and the other word that we're going to talk about today because it is the eighth of October here in Australia, and next weekend is the vote in the referendum about First Nation people's voice to Parliament uh, in the Constitution. It is a really big historic moment. So therefore, the second big word today is voice and what voice means. Um, And Jonathan's involved in so much of trying to enable this, as many people are, but First Nation people are taking an incredibly important lead and it sits with them at a private level in a difficult way, I think, to be at the centre of such a big debate and to be wearing it in their bodies and in their direct relationships. So I just really want to honour you, Jonathan, and really hear how that all is for you today. As, as, just before I pass to Jonathan to tell us a little bit, a bit about who he is and what he's doing, I want to acknowledge the Gubby Gubby people Cabby Gabby people of the Sunshine Coast area um, where I'm working and where I live and uh, I just have only respect and gratitude for their custodianship over tens of thousands of years in this beautiful part of the world and I want to acknowledge all First Nation people in Australia at this important historic time um, so thank you if I could uh, let my acknowledgement be noted as genuinely seriously one of only love hey Jonathan how are you going
1: yeah, good thanks dr. Diane um, yeah I know you said didn't say Diane so I'm happy that you use that as well so but I'm respectful uh, for this opportunity ah. um, to share with the with the um, audience and the listeners in regards to mm. um, you know, what the love theorist has to um, provide to the wider community um, before I commence, I'd just like to pay my respects to the um, Elders, both past and present. I'm a descendant of the Cookie Islander people of Mossman Gorge, which is in far north Queensland, and also to my um, ancestors um, from the Nyamal region of the Pilbara in Western Australia. I also have co- connections with Stradbroke Island through my grandmother's side, on my mother's side, um, through the Mirren oh, okay. Mir- Mir- mob as well. So um, I would like to so i I have saltwater, desert, and, and uh, rainforest as part of my cultural identity. Oh.
0: oh, my. So, really, what you haven't got covered is the mountains. <laughs>
1: I believe I've <laughs> in <out>, <laughs> the Sunshine Coast. Oh,
0: of course. <laughs> we got some mountains up here. <laughs> wow. You've got an impressive ancestry and, um, you know, stand in so much strength. Yeah. Much, much love to your people. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Hey. Now, Jonathan, given that we're brand new, getting to know each other, um, I'm, own, I'm all ears. I just wonder, and I Googled you. you know, this is the only thing you've got to, this is something you've got to do before you interview someone and have a conversation with them. You Google them. And there's a little bit, there's a little bit on the internet about you, but not a whole lot. And what's there is really fascinating. Um, but I'll let you lead with how you want to introduce yourself and tell us, tell us something about you that you'd like us to know.
1: Okay, some of what I'm going to share is, is, uh, is quite um, um, spiritually, um, you know, sensitive, but also there has been times in my life where things were not so good, but having this opportunity to share um, revolutionary love stories is something that I, I see that needs to be out there, especially in the, in, the, in the dynamic of the world that we live in today with so much pressure coming from all angles. So I'll, I'll just do an introduction about myself. So I was born in 1960 in Brisbane, Roy and Linda, who were both Indigenous to this country we call Australia. I'm the eldest of eight children, having five sisters and two brothers. Four of the older children, including myself, uh, were uh, two sisters and a brother who were placed in a home for children, taken away by the authorities in the 60s, initially where boys and girls could cohabitate until they reached the age of eight years of age. Boys who reached the age of eight were sent to places that accommodated those under the Ward of the State status and for some luck some were fostered out to people wanting to take on a parental role as was the case for many of my friends at the time. I was sent to a boys' home until the age of 13. I vividly remember at that time it was around mid-June of 1973 that a vice principal from Everton Park High School knocked on the classroom door asking me to go with him to the principal's office well didn't that create some anxiety uh, being uh, placed on me to go to the principal's office i think we we as all young people <laughs> expectation i was i was informed um, that i was going to, going home i thought to myself why would they be saying that that you're going home when i go home after school every day And it was to to the boys home They explained that you will be going back to the boy's home to collect your gear and they will take you to your parents. What a huge shock that was to hear that I was going home. For the past 10 years, the two homes that I grew up was my home. This meant that I would not be able to say goodbye to my mates, friends and significant others. Isn't it funny that even though you are institutionalised, You get this sense of separation as you grow up loving a system which deprived you of your own identity. The ward of the state representative introduced introduced me to my parents who throughout my ordeal had only seen my parents no more than the fingers on my hand during that time, which would account for about once a year visitation from them. For the first six months, my life with my parents and three other siblings was somewhat foreign and unusual. As being in the home was quite uh, regimented, our teeth, nails, and ears were checked daily before heading off to school. There were chores to be done in the morning, for example, preparing toast for two hundred boys or setting the tables. Then returning back to your room to get ready for school, and then marched in a singular format to the school. So life was unusual, unusually challenging for us in the in the six months that followed. The ward of the state representative visited the four of us, asking us questions relating to settling in a new environment. Both parents were privy to attending this meeting. Our opinions were monitored and limited, so it was seen to be that we were transitioning with our parents in their lifestyle. As we had grown up with some form of love in the institution, the bonds we made with our fellow homeboys was inseparable. By that I mean we forged some great relationships, which still stands today. The family violence began once the authorities were no longer involved. This was cruelly instigated by our father. If we did not uh, did not do what we were told, no matter how big or small, we were met with floggings with a broomstick or electric cord to be being punched with a closed fist for him. This also included going without dinner. Fear was installed in us. We grew up with love, compassion and respect in the home, but I felt that our mother did not like the way punishment was served upon us, upon her children, which resulted in being disciplined for stepping up against him. It only occurred later among ourselves, when we went to school, which was the only time we were allowed to mingle with each other. That was the reason why we were sent to the home due to his violent mannerisms. We were disciplined in ways that were similar to someone being imprisoned for breaking the law. We were scared and frightened daily. When we got home from work, we had to do yard work, such as cutting turf and laying it down on our property, to collecting rocks for two rockeries he wanted to make. During my time with, with our parents, I stayed at a few school friends' places, including a mate who came from PNG, Papua New Guinea, later to be one of my best mates. This went on for many years until my final high school term was over and I couldn't wait to get out of there. I felt sorry for my brother and sisters for leaving them, but they were happy for me to move on to better things. I managed to get a job on the Gold Coast staying with some relatives in Mermaid Beach. I worked in the fruit and veg section of Woolworths at Broad Beach. Life for me then took on a new toll. I had a licence but no car. So getting around was either thumbing, thumbing it or paying to catch the bus. I loved living on the Gold Coast, but a year on I managed to move back to Brisbane with a different job, thus the new beginning of my life and relationships. So that's just sharing a bit about my life. Now, oh, my goodness.
0: Oh, oh my goodness. Like, like you said so much, and thank you for sharing it, and I can't, believe that you're even able to speak it even now looking back there's so much pain and loss in what you were speaking about thank you so much and can i can i ask a couple of questions about it i don't want to pry too much but can i can I ask a couple of questions
1: hey, you jonathan you
0: yeah? you're nodding yep. your head I, I, oh oh sorry i just oh thank you first mm. of all it's it, it may be well, it, it, there's a, a range of people listening and who knows how people understand people's experiences who are First Nation people, who are involved in the Stolen Generation. And some people think it's historical and long ago. But in fact, as we know, it's still happening to young people that in your own lifetime, as a young boy, this happened to you is is totally shocking. Every time I hear a story like yours, it's always shocking and heartbreaking. What What is Possibly even more um, shocking is how you say you felt love in the boys' home, and how devastating it was to be taken away from there with the, you know, the friends you'd made and the, the comfort and yeah, security you felt there. To go back to your parents, which most people would think is a good thing, that then turned out to be really terrifying for you because of your father that is that is not a story people would hear and understand very easily like it's so shocking
1: yeah thanks, thanks for acknowledging and, and recognizing some of those um, situations in my life but um, as I grew up I, I just um, had this had myself after you've got to be strong and move forward and um, and and to be an example that you know doesn't matter how adverse and negative your life may be doesn't give you the reason to, to and pass it on to other people. And that's what I did with my children. I just said, the things that I went through, um, you don't need to really know about. So I'm willing to share that when you feel open and ready for to hear what has to happen to so be said.
0: So in your generation, you changed the pattern of how parents treat their children,
1: yeah? Correct, yes. I have been seen that way. Um, As you know, Margaret has nine children uh, Uh, at the moment, but, you know, I always said, Margaret, you and your children come first.
0: Well, I really want to pay my highest respect to you. I think coming from such such a heartbreaking background, to turn that around in your own family is the most impressive thing a human being can do, I think. Absolutely and you know like uh, your generosity of spirit to share share your story is is something that i think many australians don't appreciate just what it takes to do that like just to try and summarize what 15 or 18 years of your life and what that was about is not is not just words is it it's a whole yeah. connection back to everything that happened when you yeah. speak those words yeah um so, so one of one of the aspects that I was thinking about, we looking forward to speak to you, is that when we talk, some people will know the idea of intergenerational trauma, yeah, and how the loss builds on loss across the generations of family. So, for me, that you are a leader, I believe a leader at this time of your people and of all Australians in what you are doing in your work, um, and how you raised your family. Um, that that the trauma is still with you it's not that it goes away you have to somehow keep living with trauma and acting was good
1: in the world back in the mid 90s um around 94 95 i ended a, a relationship with my ex-wife and um and so unable to see my my children when they were young 15 years so not only was i in, the, in an institution for 10 but also um double the amount of time away from my children my children are back in my life now and uh, and we love we love each other and we can't we look forward to to talking and and sharing you know what's going on in our lives so and um i have four grandchildren and another one on the way soon so that makes me even feel um even stronger knowing that my children are looking after themselves
0: Wow, and what we were saying before the the link just went down for a sec is that that you you have yourself experienced great trauma as part of the stolen generation, and even when that seemed to be resolving by going back home it didn 't resolve in a positive way for you. You end up being quite unsafe as a young boy from thirteen, yeah while well, you 're still at home so so part of what we 're saying is how how you are in the world and what you 're doing comes from knowing how to live and bear bear the pain of what all that was and not spread it to your children and other people. In fact, quite the opposite. It makes me really sad to hear that you didn't have contact with your own children when they were young. That must have been a really, really heartbreaking time and it's such a long time. Did you say 15, 15 years you didn't know your children? Yeah,
1: yeah that's correct. My mind. My mind. Um, so when, when I saw my daughter my mom um, she came back in my life when she was twenty one Um I flew her up to Cairns and spent some time with me with my first granddaughter um and it was really good to see that um you know we bonded and kind to be um, make amends. can't change history, but you can create a positive future.
0: That seems to be what how you live your life, and that's a really again a very heartbreaking but beautiful example, yeah. Just don't let the pain overcome you and and take that moment and reconnect and keep going, hey? Yeah,
1: it certainly will. (laughs) Yeah. That's why I'm talking to the Oh my my.
0: Oh my my. <laughs> well, and maybe humour maybe humour is part of what keeps you going, uh, yeah. but it's it's not a happy humour, I'm um, sure. Mm-hmm. hey, so now so this is this is setting the scene in a very powerful way of who you are as a human being, and um, can you tell us a little bit about your work at this time?
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, so uh, some of the things that I'm a passionate about is about seeing people uh, who are caring towards each other. I suppose that was reinforced by the Church of England nuns at the time. Influences from my mother to care for each other was one strength she had, which is why I passed on that loving approach to my children. I love the fact that suicide prevention is something I love to be involved with, even though at times others see this as a draining on a person who works in that field. I love to advocate for our people, especially when they have been involved in their understanding of what they are reaching out for. Knowing that they appreciate the support received, we as well as knowing they have a contact should they need extra assistance in the interim. One one project that sits, still uh, sits with me is a succumbent to the Australasian Centre for Rural and Remote Mental Health, in which I undertook a pilot program called Deadly Thinking, in which I co-designed with them. This involved travelling to five remote Aboriginal communities whose suicides. Rates were off the radar, so to speak. After the three months' of comment, an evaluation was conducted and found that many community members failed to know what to do if a family member was contemplating suicide or even know where to access supports and contacts. The Deadly Thinking program was launched in 2017 in partnership with Movember at Parliament House, where Margaret and I were invited to attend. To see this being recognised as an intervention for educating Aboriginal communities, families, individuals is a testament based on the name which something our mob like to have. Deadly means the best of, whereas gammon means pretending, false, or slack, etc. So when you hear that word, you know, gammon, you know where they're coming from. When you hear the word, hey, that's deadly, you know, I even did that to, um, to some of my peers and they, the first uh, description they came up with, that's poison. That's the worst of, the for anyone, mm-hmm. deadly means the best of. Um, I think they get the gist of it all. Can
0: I ask you a couple of questions? Yes, go. S-
1: sorry? You're right.
0: It's all good. Oh, sorry. Like, So, so, yeah, uh, first of all, the work that you're doing and the Deadly Thinking Project just is so incredible and the suicide rates among First Nation people are some of the worst in the world and for any one person who is lost – through suicide is heartbreaking for the people around them, isn't it? And for the loss of that person's life and, yeah, what they could contribute. So ha- I just didn't quite get the connection of how did you come to be involved in that? Like how do people know you're around and that you could contribute in that way?
1: Yep. Okay. Uh, happy to, uh, to reply to that. Um, at the time when I was with the Royal Doctor Service, Dr. Ernest Hunter was a consultant. Uh, her, you may have heard of her. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I
0: have. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, he, um, he recommended to, to the chairperson and the um, managing director at the time, you should get Jonathan Link involved because he sets up men's groups in Cape York and is well respected for the work that he does. Through Dame Carol Kiddo, who mm-hmm. was the only female parliamentarian in Papua New Guinea at the time, said this is the sort of man we want on, to get this, um, this program going. They didn't have a name. And as you know, oh. they were thinking was the one that was um, valid for all concerned. And oh so, wow. Yeah. And
0: and like you didn't and so you were involved, sorry, you're involved in the Royal Flying Doctors Service. How did you get involved with that? Because that then led you to this yeah, yeah. rural remote That's project right.
1: that you're talking yeah. about. How did you get involved with uh the Royal Flying Doctors? Well there was a there was a position vacant for a community development officer in the mental health program, which looked at look providing psychological supports to people in remote uh, areas. Um I was under, undergoing a, um, a a degree um, in Indigenous mental health through the Bachelor Institute of Indigenous Education. Uh-huh. So I graduated, uh, yeah. you know, graduated in, in, in 2005, um, and through that, the position became available at the Rural Flying Doctor Service. So, which enabled me to go out to communities, provide clinical support, but also do community development to mm-hmm. increase capacity and advocacy for locals to understand how to you know connect with stakeholders, etc.
0: So, so like that's a perfect vehicle for you, isn't it? I didn't don't mean the plane. I mean just that opportunity to have a way of connecting with communities all around Australia. And you know, I I don't I am sure that you'd be out to cite the benefits of the Deadly Thinking Project, and, and among other community development work you do, as making an actual direct difference in people's ability to survive and yeah, keep safe.
1: Yeah. yeah, I think the power of the Deadly Thinking Program is that. Um, community members get to share some of the things that they've been unable to share um, in their life, and so this is a a, a culturally appropriate, sensitive um, space where where cultural considerations are taken into place, uh, and and um, it's been seen by the communities as hey, this is the way to go. This is what we need to do to have deadly thinking. Yeah. Yep. Yep.
0: So, so whereabouts is that program offered now? Is it all across Australia or is it really still in just a few remote communities?
1: So I was going to continue with, so there have been many other times we're speaking at national conferences mm. in mm. relation to suicide prevention. Indigenous mental health and mental and health and well-being has provided a voice to non-Indigenous counterparts to attempt to better inform them of the challenges faced when bureaucracy is unequal to the task. Aboriginal youth suicide is the highest in the world. The Rural and Remote Mental Health Design Mm -hmm. Program called Deadly Thinking Youth Train the Trainer Presenter workshop. It trains people who work in the youth and adolescent sector by providing education, skills, and knowledges to support them to facilitate this in their community. In fact, my partner Margaret and I are the national trainers. Oh. Yeah.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. So that's an ongoing commitment that you're able to keep – keep fund somebody who's funding you to do that.
1: So, um, and so when when a contract comes up, um, the, the rural and remote um, health organisation will contact us um, as a request okay. from the communities and then they'll fly us and accommodate us whilst, uh, whilst we're in the community.
0: Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. Fantastic. Um, you know, like <laughs> – it's such, it just makes so much sense, doesn't it? It just, like, to, to meet people in their place, in their, in their communities, to speak with them in ways that meet, are meaningful and make sense to them with their own people, yeah, who are adequately, hopefully, supported to do that work. Like, yeah, so I think, I think it's a real model, and we see it with other different types of programs, but this is the hard end, isn't it, of, what is needed when people's lives are at risk. Yeah, like you really don't always have much room to move and trying to connect with someone who might be feeling so desperate takes a lot of sensitivity and care, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. It certainly does. And I think, uh, uh, you know, when I worked for the Royal Flying Doctor Service, you know, it's a flying fly-out aeromedical service. And so when we touched ground, touched ground, the people know exactly what my role was. And so... I said, "Hey, but you've got to get away from the clinical part of it. I like watching football and those sort of things too. So, <laughs> like, you know, yeah, you know, about um, um, relationships first before business.
0: You know? <laughs> I like that. That's really because it builds the connection, doesn't it?
1: Exactly. Yep. And so, mob appreciate yeah. that, that you're being heard and you're being validated before you're talking about you know, clinical stuff. Yeah."
0: Look, there's a there's a phrase that I really like. That phrase you just used, uh, relationship before business. Um, The the other phrase in what you're saying just then was that bureaucracy is unequal to the task. And I think, oh my gosh! And it's because we don't put relationship first, among other things, and we don't take the time. We don't meet people where they're at in their place, do we? Yeah. So it really is the opposite to bureaucracy. What you do, isn't
1: it? Yes. I also say that that I love seeing my partner, Margaret, who is a well-respected elder in the community, who serves others before self, is passionate about meeting those in the remote context and forming strong ties with them. She is often requested to return back to their community for others to learn and benefit from the program. And so I think you know what Margaret uh, advocates and represents and so it's good to see that we're both on the same page
0: you know you two are really really a team amazing team and i met margaret the first time with you as well just last week or the week before that and i guess that just makes me feel a little less worried for you the the strenuousness on your heart of the work you do yeah is is there it has an effect to witness such suffering and be co- so concerned that you and margaret are such a team and can look out for each other i'm really i'm really pleased that that's so
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's and really good that you're just can, showing can, love. Yeah, it's really good that we can bounce off each other, and, yeah, and, and share those experiences. Um, you yeah, know, especially when it comes to absolutely business, you know, um, you know, yeah, there's well, women, you know, I make sure, ensure that, um, you know, Margaret uh, deals with that element and vice versa when it comes to the main stuff, yeah,
0: yeah. And again, there, that that cultural awareness of what works and what is best for people is is so refined, you know, so sensitive to your people. And I just don't see that in white culture. You know, as a social worker from way back, I never once asked a male client, did he feel okay about working with me? You know, like just too insensitive, let alone an Aboriginal male client, um, you know, like not sensitive to how that difference could be sitting uncomfortably with that person, so I, I just continue to learn every time I talk with someone like yourself who's so so sensitive and skilled in that way of how to how to really connect with a person. I just keep learning. So thank you. Thanks for reminding me about that.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Um, did, um, as you're aware, um, I work. on am a permanent full-time worker for um, Queensland Health on the Gold Coast, and when new staff um, arrive and uh, Start working for Gold Coast Health. Part of that is they may, must undertake um, cultural capabilities um, work, and mm-hmm. so with new nurses, etc., I'm asked um, to provide some sort of um, program that enables them to understand from a cultural lens. And, um, and we found it that, that um, you know, being being a, a member of the Australian society, you need to be aware what First Nations history is as well as you know the collaboration work if you're going to be going to a remote community as the um, only mental health worker um, indigenous mental health worker on the gold coast the um, mental health specialist services provides um, education around um, the indigenous uh, aspects of mental health and so when new nurses come on board with queensland health um, and in, in particular it's the nursing area that we because they have their, their face of of meeting with our clients when they come to ED. And so I've been asked to provide provide a mental health, Indigenous mental health perspective in relation to what the clinicians and nursing staff need to be aware of when engaging with someone who may be having psychotic thoughts or dealing with paranoia and that sort of stuff from a cultural perspective. And so that educates them. That's so important. Yes, yes
0: sorry cut across you so that so is it only the nurses that you do that with do you do it within allied health or the other medical
1: staff yeah so the other thing there dr diane is that i reach out to the allied health um areas whether it be social workers, etc yeah. and um and quite have right. quite often we'll have in services to uh, to the different teams
0: that's that's really amazing. So, Jonathan, like um, one of the things I'm aware of, because I teach in mental health. Uh- at the uni where I work, is that there's a real prejudice in the system around people who have mental health issues, like which just bothers me deeply. So it all, you know, like that people who train to do good to care and help people who have mental health issues somehow, some of us hold prejudices and judgments. Yeah, so I guess I just would be interested in your point of view about do you think mental health staff, unless they're doing the work. To, to check their own prejudices could be holding racial prejudices against Indigenous
1: clients. Do
0: you think yeah. that is a possible issue?
1: Yeah, that's a good point there. Um, here on the Gold Coast, we have a, 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 a centre, or it's not maybe so much a centre, it's a unit, where it's called the Crisis Stabilisation uh, Unit, and it's given an, an Indigenous name, Yulbaru um, Ungabar, which is a place to be happy. And so when clinicians, they're trained in um, and worked with lived experience peer workers. So if there's an Indigenous client, consumer comes in, the clinician and the other peer worker will have cultural understandings and had a, appropriate questions as so, well.
0: So hopefully that helps helps the um, cultural appropriateness to be consistent across staff groups and how they treat people. Yeah, that's what you're hoping. Absolutely. Like the peer workforce is so important, isn't it? Yes.
1: I think also... So, so, the-
0: sorry, do you have...
1: Some you're right, sorry. Here, um, um, I set up an advisory group uh, requested by the Mental Health Specialist Services, uh, which helps look at, um, you know, being part of some of those um, challenging questions that, that um, the system may struggle with. And so um, whenever a new unit or, or something like that is, is established, the advisory group is part of that that process as well.
0: Oh, that's that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. So, like, do you, can we just um, – now, what did you want to talk about next? Because I was just wondering if we can segue to how you – well, first of all, that your work is ongoing no matter what happens next Saturday with the vote. But, um, how do you see – the work that you're doing cross-links with the national, yeah, situation around voice? Because in some ways it seems to me you're doing a lot to make sure people are heard, yeah, at, at an individual community level. And, of course, then we've got this big a national voice that we're trying to establish. Can you make a comment about how the two go together for you?
1: Yep. Okay, so I've, I've written something up there for you as well. Go um, on. Oh, I see the Thank referendum. you.
0: Thank you. You're Thank right.
1: you. So as a seven year old in 1967, oh, yes, please. Yeah. So as a seven year old in nineteen sixty-seven, a referendum was held to recognise Aboriginal people in the constitution, in which over ninety percent of the Australian population voted to be included in the population count. I was too young to understand what it was or what it meant for Aboriginal people. It was also the highest yes vote of any Australian referendum which enabled the Commonwealth to enact laws for Aboriginal people. How coincident How coincidental that the referendum occurred in May of 1967, the same month as my birthday. (laughs) At school, I was treated differently than other students at the time, mainly due to being in an all-boys home, which was renowned at the local school and community level. We were targets on a daily basis. Not only that, but racism was rife across Australia, particularly to the previous generations that preceded my existence. Did the referendum change or improve the quality of life for Aboriginal people? To me, the referendum can mean several things. One, it can create hope for change. Two, it could mean another way of including Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the processes of democracy without bias. And three, it can allow equity to flourish if managed appropriately with respect for all concerned. So the first point I looked at, hope for change, I described it as For generations, Aboriginal people, including Torres Strait Islanders, have been classed under a different umbrella, which applied laws segregating them into a category dictated by the Commonwealth of Australia and across the jurisdictions of this nation. The impact felt among each tribal group or clan groups historically has filtered intergenerational scarring communities, families and individuals to this very day. As one of the most researched people in Australia, if not the world, Aboriginal Australia seeks a greater understanding from mainstream Australia to be respectful and have a sense of pride knowing that they share and exist with the longest living cultural culture in the world. Aboriginal Australia needs its own independence for its unique traditions, customs and spiritual connection, otherwise not comprehended by the wider community of Australia. But having hope for change in the referendum may somehow increase the opportunity to rekindle such a proposal. Giving rise to a new beginning in contemporary Australia today. So that was one question. That, you that
0: that is that is such a beautiful beautiful statement of hope. My question to you is: If the yes vote does not succeed, do you think that it has been? that hope can still survive and that we can find a way still of going forward. Like, I just can't even imagine the year's vote not getting up. It means so much, as you've articulated. So so do you think we can hold on hope if it doesn't get up, is my question, I guess.
1: Okay. Um, I might be able to address that a little bit further down. I was going to say another way of including advocates okay. and yep. people in the process of democracy without bias. So estimated population of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people as of June 2021 was 983,700, which according to this, the ABS is around 3.8% of the total Australian population. One third are under age 15 of years of age and by 2024 will enable this particular age group to vote. 91% identified as Aboriginal with 4% as Torres Strait Islander and 43 identifying as both majority of Aboriginal people live in New South Wales, Queensland and WA, making it a total of 664,231, which could have a huge bearing on the political landscape depending upon who voted which political party. There is an estimated 26 MPs who identified as Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander. Voting is a right and not a privilege, but for those incarcerated for three years or more, they are ineligible to vote in a federal election. Close to a third of all prisoners in Australia are Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. There was a push from the political party to put forward a change in the referendum mach- machinery bill to allow incarcerated people to vote in the referendum to allow an Indigenous voice to Parliament.
0: Oh, yeah. Like when we think about black deaths in custody and the disproportionate number of Aboriginal people incarcerated, it is so. It is one of the hardest examples, living examples of the injustices that continue to happen, isn't it? And that some some of the people incarcerated can't vote to try and contribute to a better future is part of the prejudice and the racism, isn't it? It just doubly silences them. So so. Uh, Where do, (laughs) where? Like the voice is so important, isn't it? Um, it's like you were saying, the refer- like they say in, sorry, the Uluru Statement from the Heart says the 1967 referendum um, counted people recognised that Indigenous people existed, which in itself is just totally shocking to think that that had to happen and wasn't happening, and that this vote in, you know, 2023 is about First Nation people being heard and, of course, you know, voice being heard uh, is at the centre of justice isn't it yeah so so the implication is that as a collective of people and all the people that came together in 2017 to create the statement from the heart that they weren't being heard that they didn't feel that justice was being done yeah Um, this and now we here we are like six years later it's taken six years for Australia as a people to be ready to be counted on this on what we think about this long time to wait from that time Hey. So, so voice is is a really big word at the moment for what it holds and what it can, what the hope of the future is, isn't it?
1: Yes. Um, One of the other questions that I read was allow equity to flourish if managed appropriately with respect for all concerned. And I and I made Mm. this uh, uh, social justice to me is part of reconciliation. If we as Aboriginal people are to be treated in the same context as other Australians, there needs to be a strong bond between the Australian people and the Australian and Aboriginal Australia, alongside a stronger and deeper relationship at all levels of government, as stated by Social Justice Commissioner Mick Gooder back in July 2011. This would, this would allow Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities to be entrepreneurial, setting up primary businesses and opportunity for employment in a market already established by the colonisers across the seaports and borders across Australia. My belief is that mainstream conglomerates should pay their rent to the traditional owners of the lands in which they operated since the early 1800s to now. Indigenous Business Australia is one of the... So this is the... Sorry? Sorry. No, you continue. I didn't realise you had some more there. Yeah. Keep going, please. Just in relation to how we can flourish, Indigenous Business Australia, or IBA, yep. is such entity that provides financial assistance to Indigenous Australians who want to start or grow their own businesses. They offer a range of services, including business loans, asset leasing, and investment management. Another organisation that supports Indigenous business is Supply Nation. They provide a database of verified Indigenous businesses that can be searched by business name, product, service, area, or category. Supply Nation connects verified businesses to paid corporate, government, and non-for-profit across Australia. There are approximately twelve to 16,000 Indigenous-owned businesses in Australia. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tourism is certainly one of the the overseas visitors, cherish and learn more about the cultural landscape from traditional custodians, especially in language other than English. Now that, to me, shows that we live in a lucky country, but there is much more to be done.
0: And the foundations, hopefully, at those kind of examples you're giving, It can be scaled up. So we get hundreds of thousands of businesses owned and run by, yeah, First Nation people, not just the the tens of thousands we've currently got. This is cause for hope, isn't it, the work that's already happening yeah um not only the outreach work that you you do yeah through your work but also the business opportunities, because without financial security and the dignity that brings, you can't have equality can you you yeah. just yeah and of course just dispossession from people's land is also a major issue major issue, and as you know, mining companies are right in the middle of some of the worst travesties at this time. Yeah, those yes. travesties of even with um the Native Title Act, it has not stopped a lot yeah. of the exploitation that's still mm-hmm. happening. So mm-hmm. so you hold some hope do you hold some hope that no matter what happens next Saturday in the national vote, that there is a groundswell of change happening anyway? Do you think that? Okay. Um
1: So the voice to parliament, so having heard both sides of the voice to parliament, there are genuine aspects, both positive and negative. Some have decided that it will divide a nation. When I saw and heard that that statement, my thoughts immediately said, isn't that how we either vote Liberal or Labor? With minority parties sitting on the edge of, of being elected as well, for example, one nation. According to the latest polls, it is envisaged that the no campaign is streaking ahead long by two thirds. Over a million people have voted, yet many are indecisive due to the lack of not knowing what their arguments are and what details are needed to clarify what the real voice for Indigenous Australians is. I believe that mainstream Australia's voice has dictated for way too long how Indigenous people and communities go about their everyday existence and how they conduct their affairs. In saying that, an Indigenous voice included in the new referendum would allow greater autonomy and freedom to express oneself and a democracy set up in order for all to be fair, just and respectful, including First Nations peoples and descendants.
0: So what I take from what you just said is that your hope rests on the yes vote winning that it has to be to put a line in the sand to get that you know baseline equality and respect for First Nation people before other things can can proceed. That's what you're saying
1: yeah yes. So, for how long have we been uh, a silent majority, uh-huh. majority, yet here's an opportunity for this to, you know, uh, mm-hmm. flip, so to speak. And so, you know, um, when I hear some of those uh, who are advocating for the no, um, as representatives for the no um, vote, it disheartens me because the struggle's been there ever since, um, you know, the intergenerational traumas that's been put upon us.
0: Absolutely. So I, I I find it really hard to just have hope for Australia's wisdom to make the right decision. I just am really worried that that won't happen. And I think we're going to need to stick together even more afterwards if it doesn't get up next week, you know, because it'll be such a disheartening time for First Nation people and the people who love and stand with you. Like, we just have to stick together no matter what. Hey, whatever it looks like, we have to stick together. Uh, um, You know, I just feel like First Nation people have been holding the burden of the inequality and the cost of it really since colonisation began, uh, that if we miss this opportunity to get that baseline respect, I think it's just going to be hard to get another referendum and another opportunity in the near future. So I'm really worried about that.
1: Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah. You know
0: where I get my hope from? Oh, you know where I get my hope from? I get my hope from people like yourself, uh, and uh, that that you will carry on. You will keep caring for the people you already care for, and who who invite you to step forward, and. I know everybody else will carry on, but it just is the weight in your heart, isn't it? How how can you keep carrying the 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 burden of injustice? It's a very heavy weight. Yes. Yeah? yeah. So can I can I ask you then? Can we can I can I stick with you? Can I support you however I can? And can you just say if you if if you think there's anything I can do? To support you and Margaret, no matter how big or small, no matter what happens next Saturday,
1: yeah, yes, it's great to have an ally, thank you
0: ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, like you can count you can count on me, you can absolutely count on me, and I know there are millions of good hearted Australians. I just hope people take it, even as an act of faith, even if they're not sure what's going on, you know what it means, act of faith, say yes, please say yes, yeah. Is there, Jonathan, is there anything else you wanted to share today in our first really big conversation
1: together? Um, I, I, I did see from um, from your email that you wanted to know, you said, can you tell us a bit about how you think about love? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to respond to some of the questions that you have uh, posed for me to respond to. So I said, love takes on many forms, descriptions and approaches. For, but for me, love is a personal commitment no matter what that may look like. I love watching sport. I love watching, uh, working in an industry others may find unbearable to deal with. I love having time out from a busy schedule placed upon me. But most of all, is the love I have for my children, partner and extended family. There are other things I love which vary over time and space. Catching up with long lost friends is another thing I love. But I see that you must love yourself in order to own your own way before you can give love to others.
0: Absolutely. What do you love about yourself? Um, There's a question.
1: It's, um, I love the, the, um, the having the ability to uh, express myself in, in non-judgmental ways and to know that um, whether um, it's received or, or frowned upon, um, I'll still be transparent in the way I own as a person.
0: That's really beautiful. That's really beautiful. I can see that's who you are. I can see that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So, like Bell Hooks, who's one of the people that I've been inspired by to do these podcasts. She was an American black woman who spoke about racism in America, and and she said one of the one of the most um, difficult things to witness is among her own people seeing pe- her own people not treating each other okay and as part of living in a racist society, you know, because of the oppression, just being a burden and a weight for people that affects their relationships. So when I hear you say that you love your family and and your partner, this is so important to keep loving the people around you and not to let, yeah, the injustices cut across and hurt your relationships, yeah. Yeah. So, So it just really makes me pleased that you're really, doing that you're doing it and in a really hostile context really where you don't get very much support and i just thank you for that i thank you
1: you're right. yeah um, when, when you talked about bell hooks I, I wrote having not heard of her until this moment i managed to go online and google bell hooks having briefly oh. read what oh. she has done over the past 40 years is a testament to her contribution in how race gender economics and politics create Popular debates to this very day. To agree upon what Bell Hooks states could depend on many beliefs that someone may have. It could mean that oneself would be totally uh, submersing themselves into wanting to change and the will to change in order to overcome oppression. Otherwise, I'm happy to read more of Gloria Jean uh, Watkins uh, and his Bell Hooks as she has written other publications such as The Will to Change, all about love and where we stand class matters yeah
0: yeah i think i think you'd find thank you so much for googling her um she's one of my heroes and uh because of how she puts love in the middle of what needs to be what needs to guide us in, in correcting injustices and harm. She says yes. love is the way, kind of, you know, and, uh, and all the big movements of our time for justice have been about love, haven't they? Yes. Um, and and this, this struggle of First Nation people in Australia is, is important to the whole integrity of our society. Yeah, yes. so I, I just want to thank you as one of the people Standing in that space, yeah, and and your generosity today to come and speak, really, very soon after meeting me about this, so so we could be on the record as standing together as the vote is taken in Australia. I just want to really thank you. You've been amazing. Mm. Thank you.
1: It's an honour, Anne. Thank you very much for the opportunity to share with your listeners, but also you know, giving giving me a chance to to share a bit about a little bit about myself.
0: Oh, please, I think I think they'll be just wanting to know more about you. So we might have to have you back another day. I do thank you, and I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you. We'll be in touch too, okay?
1: Thank you.
0: And standing with you next Saturday, no matter what. Thank, thank you. you. Take care. You too.